Well, good morning again. Welcome, everybody. We're really glad that you're here this morning. I have a few really important announcements. I mean, they're really important every week, but like this morning, they're really, really important. Um, next, no, in two Sundays. What is that? Do you guys hear whistling? Oh, be quiet about it. Don't talk about everything that's going on in your mind. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I have the giggles. I'm not going to... Okay, I got this. <laughs> Focus. All right. Okay. In two Sundays from now, we are going to have a baptism service. That's on May 9th. And if you are in a place where you would like to be baptized, would you reach out to us? Um, and Jason will connect with you, give you all the information. If you reach out and you respond to saying, hey, I'd like to be baptized, it really is just information for you. Don't feel like you're signing up for that and we're going to expect you to do it. But um, the way that you would do that is by going to your online communication card and there's a little box that you can check for being baptized. Or you can also text the word baptism to our Brookview number that's behind me. So is it true it's behind me? Oh, it is. Wow, that's really cool. Um, so that we are just so excited to celebrate um, people who are just saying, I want to follow Jesus with the rest of my life. And uh, we were talking this week about this reality that oftentimes in baptism, people feel like, hey, I have to have everything just right in my life and be like, whoa, super holy, and then I'm going to go under the water and be holy, and then it will be like, wow, here I am from here forward that's just not the way it works. Either that or my experience is really weird. Um, but it really is just this public profession where you are saying, I'm going to pursue God and I want the things of him in my life. And so that's a public way for you to say that. And it's our way of celebrating that choice with you. So again, there's the information to sign up and we're looking forward to that service. We have some changes that have come up once again. Um, we noticed that as our kids are returning to hybrid learning, um, a lot of our students have school, and it runs into that kids' church time that we used to have on Friday afternoons. And so we got together, and we decided we're going to make this an evening thing. It will happen on Thursday nights from 6.30 p.m. until 8 o'clock p.m. That is for our school-aged kids, kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade, no, depending on what your school district does for middle school. And they will actually, it used to be that we all gathered together downstairs and then we broke off. But for this, we're going to have the school-aged kids, the elementary age, up here, and they'll start up here. Um, we'll greet them in the foyer and then be excited about doing our kids' church program together. And that's where you'll also pick them up. Um, and then our middle school group will be meeting downstairs, and that will go again from 6.30 to 8 o'clock at night. And so we're really excited about that, and we hope that that change um, serves our families better than our Fridays were going to be. Um, so there we go. Uh, we might need to make another change as we realize that doesn't really work, but we're trying to kind of 
um, figure out what when do parents mostly have life groups because we don't want to um, mess with those things and your opportunity for communicate community as adults, but we also want to build into our kids. Um, with that, I have a really cute story that Haley Beckman shared this morning. Um, they have a little boy, Sawyer, who's five years old, and um, they were talking about marriage this week and how that all works, and somehow it came up that Trevor and I are married. We're married, you guys, so I'm a cougar. Um, yeah, uh, and he just, like, she's like, no, she has a husband. It's Pastor Jason. No, no, I don't know who that is. So she only knows Trevor and I together. He only knows Trevor and I together. So there's that. Um, we're going to try and separate ourselves from each other. Trevor's downstairs. I'm upstairs. The two will not meet again. <laughs> um, okay, and then the other change that we have coming is we are moving our service time back beginning next Sunday to 10.30 a.m. Um, you might think, oh, darn it. Why are you doing that again? Um, we realized it really is not enough time for our worship team to get here in the mornings. Sometimes we're running up against sound issues or instrument troubles, and it just feels really chaotic. And having an extra 30 minutes to kind of prepare ourselves would really be wonderful. And so um, we're just thank you in advance for being gracious um, with us as we try and figure out how, how all of this works. We used to meet at 10.30 a.m. What I love about it now is I don't have to change the sign on the corner that was on my to-do list since we started. Initially, we started meeting at 10 a.m., because we were doing a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service when we didn't have Wi-Fi in the building and we couldn't live stream and see you in your homes. And so um, our worship team was having to serve for both of those things and they didn't have to rehearse on Sunday mornings. So with Sunday being our only time to be together and to practice, that is just going to work a lot better for everybody. So beginning next week, if you come at 10 o'clock, um, you'll just enjoy our practice time until we start our service at 1030 in the morning. Um, for those of you that are watching at home, the live stream will go up at 1030 as well. Hopefully with it being summer and some, well, it's not summer, but it felt like summer last week. Um, and we're starting to stay up a little bit later. The sun's out and you're enjoying um, being with people and getting outside of your house a bit. Um, over the summer. Hopefully that works well for your schedule as well. Um, we love for you to RSVP to church um, every week. We have that on the website for you, and it just helps us to make sure that we are gathering together in a safe way and um, in complying with the governor's orders in that regard. So you go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash church and you sign up, and thank you for doing that each week. We also have our online communication card that I referenced. We love to hear from you. If there is anything going on in your world, we would love to know about it. And you can reach out to us by going to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact. And um, that's it. Um, I'm excited for whatever Jason has to say to us this morning. Um, I see that he's messing with his microphone. So I'm going to, you're okay? All right. So then I will hand it off to, maybe I'll pray. That's what I'm, yeah, that just feels right in this moment. God, I thank you for this church um, that you have built and you are continuing to build. As we fix our gaze on you, God, would you show us 
how it is that you want us to move in our lives and in our world. God, we need you, and we want to go your way. I am so tempted so often to go my way, but your way is the better way. Um, And this morning, as we talk about rhythms of life and um, this reality that life is changing again and it's opening up and we have this opportunity to reset in some ways, I pray that your spirit would meet us here, that you would just be speaking to us, that we would get um, something from you that um, helps us to move forward in healthy ways, in healthy rhythms for our lives for our families, and for um, the people that we come in contact with. It's in your name I pray. Amen. What's up? Good morning. Healy and Sean, I think, sir, I need to get acquainted. <laughs> I, don't, I can't believe it. I dedicated him as a baby, and he doesn't remember that. Uh, Trev, don't sit so close to my wife. All right, you guys. So last week, um, I had you think back to life pre-COVID. Like, imagine that. Because in this past year, we've, we've heard or we've all thought a thousand times, I just want things to go back to normal, right? I just, I just want my old life back. But my question is, do you really want life to go just, go back to just the way that it was? Like, or, um, you know, has this like long life pause sort of enabled you in some ways to hit a reset? Do you want the same schedule? Do you want the same routine with your life that you had before COVID? What was your schedule like? You know, what were your, what were your rhythms like? Did, did they help you deepen relationships with God and with others? Did your rhythms enable you to flourish and, and to grow? One of my favorite writers um, and thinkers on Christian spirituality is Dallas Willard. And he was a devout follower of Jesus. He was also the chair of the philosophy department at USC. And many of you remember back to like last summer, kind of the beginning of COVID, we did the series on the Sermon on the Mount, right? How many of you remember that? Thank God. Okay. Uh, just so you know, I got a ton of material for that from Willard or from other writers, other pastors that got their stuff from Willard. And um, in thinking through, like, the greatest challenges to following Jesus, Dallas Willard once said this. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. Hurry. And I, you guys, I think he's really onto something because hurry is the issue that is underneath so many other issues. Chronic anger, outrage culture, low-grade anxiety, the rise of suicide, mental illness, okay, secularization, violence, materialism, digital distraction, loneliness, exhaustion, burnout, you name it. Carl Jung, who 
was the psychologist who coined the language of introvert and extrovert and made about 40, 40% of you feel human, <laughs> and whose work is the, the kind of the basis uh, for the Myers-Briggs personality theory. Many of you have taken that or are familiar with that. And, and Carl Jung, not a, not a Christian, uh, not a, like, but he's, he once said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Now, when many of us, I think when we, when we hear the word devil, we, we think of a, a little red demon with a pitchfork. Or if you're a little older, maybe you can go with me on this, Will Ferrell on Saturday Night Live <laughs> playing rock and roll, right? But when we envision the devil and how he works in our world, very few of us think of a stream of alerts on our phone or another activity crammed into the weekend, or a third sport for little Johnny or whatever. And yet the effect of hurry on our soul is devastating. Psychologists now diagnose people with what they call hurry sickness. It's not a joke. Like psychology today defines it as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time, and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. How many of you suffer from hurry sickness? I mean, come on. Uh, and the moniker hurry sickness was coined in the 1950s by Meyer Friedman, who was the cardiologist who first connected the dots between chronic stress and anger and heart disease. And he, defi he defined it as a continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish and, and or achieve more and more things or participate in more and more events in less and less time. Okay, question. How many of you either are currently or in the past have suffered, have really truly have suffered from this diagnosable? Yeah, I mean... There's a woman named Ruth Haley Barton, who is a Christian author and a speaker. And she's done a lot of teaching and a lot of research on this subject. And her cry to people in the church, people that are trying to follow Jesus, is to create more margin, more quiet space in life. She's like, if you want to grow in Christ, this is what you have to do. Create margin, create quiet space. And she has 10 signs that you are moving through life too fast. Let me run through these real quick for you. You guys ready to do a little self-diagnosis? I didn't see that many hands go up, and I think you're, I think you're living a delusional experience. <laughs> so see how many of these signs describe you. Here we go. Number one, irritability. You're just super quick to grouch at people, especially the people closest to you. Okay, your spouse, your kids, your roommates, your coworkers. Number two, hypersensitivity. So kind of just emotionally explosive like very defensive. The smallest little criticism just sets you off, right? Makes you angry or, or makes you cry. Uh, restlessness. When, when you actually do get space and time at, at where, you, where it's possible to relax, you can't. If you try to sleep or take a day off, you just really struggle to, to let things settle down. Like you have to reach for your phone or you have to turn on some music or you have to flood yourself with some kind of stimuli because quiet is painful. This is that place where we're exhausted, but we can't seem to rest. We can't seem to sleep. Number four, compulsive overworking. We just can't stop 
answering email after email or text after text. We just go from, from task to task, like errand to errand, and we just can't seem to shut it down or stop. Number five, emotional numbness. This is where we have this like weird, very narrow range of emotions. The main things that we mostly feel are just anger and anxiety. And other than that, we pretty much just feel flat. We just don't have much capacity for empathy because it takes time to slow down and to feel what another person is feeling. Number six, escapist behaviors. Right? You just binge watch stuff on Netflix or Prime or YouTube or whatever your outlet of choice is. Or you use alcohol or you play video games to a really unhealthy degree. Or you just scroll Facebook and Insta like obsessively or whatever your like cultural narcotic of choice may be. Number seven, disconnected from identity and calling. We just forget who we are and who we're not what we're called to do, and what we're not called to do. And so we just kind of keep getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent. And life becomes very reactive rather than proactive. Number eight, hoarding energy. This is where you encounter that person that requires a little extra, and you just go, I can't do this person. Right? I, I cannot get involved with this person. I cannot get involved with this thing because I just, I don't have enough energy for all of that. Number nine, not able to attend to human needs like your own needs. Basic things like getting enough sleep and regular exercise and just eating. We don't have time to eat. Who has time to eat? Right? We don't have time to sleep. Here's something interesting. Did you guys know that prior to Edison and the light bulb, the average person, average person slept 11 hours a night. Like, think about that for a minute. We, we are living in a different world, right? Okay, number 10, slippage in our spiritual practice. Why? Well, because we can't slow down long enough to just turn our attention over to God. We don't have enough space to receive God's love and to be transformed by him into people of love. Isn't this fun, you guys? This is so uplifting. Look, I live in the same culture that you do, and I struggle with all of this as much as anyone. And so today, I just want you to know, I am talking to myself as much as, as anybody. And so if you're here watching, and, or you know, if you're here or you're watching and, you, and like, you don't struggle with this stuff, I just want to say, good on you, mate. But I think for most of us, this is a serious battle. And I think, um, and, you know, what I want us to see about this is that there's more at stake than just our emotional health. There really is. We kind of go, well, you know, I'd be a lot less stressed out and all that, probably feel better, but there's a whole lot more at stake than just our emotional health. And last week, if you were here, uh, we looked at the eulogy exercise, and then many of you were forced by tyrannical life group leaders <laughs> to, ex to do that exercise this last week. Um, but the whole idea of it was to bring some clarity to our deepest values. And it, uh, so I shared mine. I wrote, I wrote what, what I would want my kids to say at my memorial one day. And here's the thing about that. I, I want them to feel loved by me. 
I, I want them to feel known. I, I want them to see character in me. I want to help shape them into the very best version of themselves. And you guys, here's the thing. That like really, really matters to me. But when I am afflicted in a serious way over long periods with hurry sickness, I just cannot be the kind of dad or husband that I want to be. I can't be the kind of friend I want to be. I'm not the neighbor I want to be. I can't be the kind of pastor I want to be. And most certainly, I am not the apprentice of Jesus that I want to be. I mean, apart from all of that stuff, you know, prolonged hurry sickness is no big deal, Right? The only thing it damage, damages is, is pretty much everything that matters most to me, really. We think, wow, it's just my emotional health and I can cover. No, this damages everything that we value most. And this is why Dallas Willard would say, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life today. I love what Ronald Rollheiser, a Catholic sage, says about this. He writes, just kind of observing our culture. He says, today a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but simply to have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Now, to clarify what we mean by spiritual life, because that language in our culture, it's super easy to sentimentalize. Like in our culture, there's all sorts of talk about spiritual life. And what most people mean is like, yeah, I do yoga once or twice a week, and then I go hiking on the weekends, right? And so it's easy to sort of sentimentalize this idea of spiritual life, to turn it into sort of this disembodied feeling or whatever. So let me define this and just kind of get our minds around what we mean. What is spiritual life? Spiritual life is this. It is our capacity to receive and give love in relationship with God and others. To receive love from God and, and others, but particularly from God, and then to give that love back to God and back to others, to our friends, to our family, to our, um, um, to our community. And eventually, if we stay with it long enough, like even to our enemies. And hurry is incompatible with love. They're just like oil and water. They just don't mix. Now, what I find interesting is because I, I really do want to give and receive love. Like, I find this interesting. That's, that is what I really want. That, like, in my deepest core, that is what I want. And last week in doing the eulogy exercise, I saw how at the end of my life, the thing that will matter most to me is relationships. Relationships with my kids, with my friends, with my wife, with everyone, really. And many of, many of you did that exercise, and you found it to be, like, powerful and clarifying. But here's the thing. Love and hurry are incompatible. You just can't love well in a rush. And yet, what we do is we tend to schedule our lives with very little, if any, margin. 
Our, our day is just planned from wake up to bedtime, and there is no margin. There's no breathing room. Margin, as we know, is the space between your load and your limits. And here's the thing. When most of us schedule a day or we plan for a week or we plan for a month, you know what we don't plan? We, we don't ever think to schedule in some margin. And so any little disruption just throws us into stress and panic. Guys, we, 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 we intentionally plan and schedule our lives this way. In fact, here's the thing. If we were to schedule margin in, in our lives, like these spaces where nothing has to be done or accomplished and nothing's riding on anything, it feels inefficient, right? I don't have time for margin. In fact, okay, we can hear a message like this, and some of you are like, okay, I kind of am in, but... And we have some pushback. For instance, we think, well, if I don't do as much as I possibly can, I will never make it. Big question for you. What is it? Well, I don't know, but I won't make it. Stephen Covey, we, we looked at his stuff last week. He would say, well, you better make darn sure you've chosen the right it because you can spend your whole life trying to make it and realize at the end that it was, it was the wrong it the whole time. And let's be honest. Most of us are so busy trying to make it that we rarely pause long enough to, to think about it. Like, so before you, you cram your life full of things, you, you better know what it is for you. Uh, now, let me tell you where it came from for most of you. It came from your parents. Because they were massively successful, and you're trying to live up to all of that. Or they were massive failures, and you don't want to be like them. Or they were massively in the middle, and they were boring. I mean, there's just no way to win with parents. If you're a parent, your kids, they're going to be frustrated with you forever, no matter what. No matter how you grew up, you're, you're totally scarred, right? And look, if you're trying to make it, you better know what it is. You better know what, where, where it comes from. Here's another one. Maybe you think, okay, but, but if I don't do as much as I possibly can, I'll fall behind. Okay, that's legit. Fall behind who? Who are you worried you're falling behind? What in our culture has so thoroughly dictated to you that this is how it has to be, that it drives your schedule? Well, I don't want my kids to fall behind. Honey, I don't want us to fall behind. Honey, we have to keep up. Okay, keep up with who? Fall behind what? Or how about this one? If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I will be poor. Now listen, for some of you, not all of you, but for some of you, this is like a big deal. The fear of becoming poor just drives you. Now, what is poor? Well, that's an important question because maybe you've never stopped to define it. And yet there is this sinking, lurking feeling, maybe something you grew up with or maybe it's something you heard somewhere, but this tape plays over and over and so you're just pouring your life, your time into a pace that is on the edge because of a fear that you've never actually stopped to identify or define. A fear that's so vague, you don't even know what poor is. But this vague fear is underneath so much of your schedule and your motivation and your life. Okay, one more. If I don't do as much as I possibly can, I won't measure up. Okay, 
Measure up to what? Measure up to who? Who is setting the standards for what a good life is? Is it your parents? Is it your extended family? Is it their definition of success? Is it your friends you hang out with? Is it the other mommies at school? Like, who's dictating what you have to measure up to? Now, just think for a second. If you tend to live with hurry sickness, honestly, what is it that's driving you? Where does it come from? What is it that's underneath it? Is it a voice from your dad, your mom? Is it the success of somebody you feel you need to outshine? Will somebody think that you're lazy? Will somebody think that you're a failure? Who? Honestly, do you think that's God's voice? Is God telling you to live your life without any margin? And for some of you, there is definitely a someone or a group of someones, and you hear the voice in your head. You hear it in your head, and it is driving you into something that is unhealthy for you and also unhealthy for those around you. Okay, now, but I've got one more thought about this. And I think these days, this is kind of a new thought for me, but I think these days there's something else going on. In addition to this internal voice from your parents or your grandparents, in addition to your extended family or your friends or your brother or your sister or the other mommies or whatever, I think that there is something else happening for all of us. These days, I, I think we all face what I will call the pressure of living in a yes culture. The society in which we live is new, and it is unique, and it is very different, and I think that it is having a deep effect on our collective psyche. The Korean-German philosopher Byung-Chul Han has, defined, has identified something. He wrote a book called The Burnout Society, and he observes that neurological illnesses, okay, such as anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar, and burnout syndrome, he says they mark the landscape of pathology at the beginning of the 21st century and are the emotional household we call home. And he's like, it's weird. And his main observation is that Western culture has shifted away from what he calls a disciplinary society to an achievement society. So what is a disciplinary society? If you imagine back to like England, say two or 300 years ago, England was governed by no's. Everything was a no. It was all about what you are not allowed to do, like based on your class or based on your gender or based on whatever the circumstances of your life were. You can't do this and you can't do this and you can't do that. And, it, and when, a, when a disciplinary society goes to the extreme, it produces neurosis. It just does, which was the breeding ground for Sigmund Freud and all of his theories about mental disorders that are produced by either extreme oppression from outside of us or, or repression from inside of us, okay? But guys, our achievement society that we now live in is nothing like Freud's world at all. We live in a world that in many ways was created by his ideas. His ideas have been adopted by society at large, and our society is now governed not by no, it's governed by yes, we are encouraged to do pretty much anything we want. And Han contends that all of this freedom and positivity is actually creating other problems. He, he writes about what he calls the violence of positivity. What? I mean, 
the violence of positivity, saying that the result of all this positivity, this you can do and be anything you want, is actually anxiety. It causes us to freak out because we are living life day after day completely unsettled with who we are. Like, what if I'm the wrong person? Right? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I choose the wrong profession? What if I pursue the wrong dream? What if I could do something great, but I just end up normal? And it leads to depression, exhaustion, and burnout. And Han argues that depression began its ascent in Western, as Western culture began to say, hey, you do you. Be true to yourself. Don't let anybody or anything limit you. Han writes this. He says, the depressed individual is unable to measure up. He is tired of having to become himself. The depressive's bleak thought that nothing is possible can only occur in a society that thinks nothing is impossible. And he argues that our achievement society is now kind of giving way to what he calls a doping society, where because we are living with all of these immense expectations of ourselves, we just want to escape from it all from all of the stress and all the competition. And so it's drugs or alcohol or Netflix or video games or traveling to get away from it all or workaholism or going out to eat night after night just trying, the, trying to find the best you know, IPA and the, and the best burger in the, in the world or whatever our cultural narcotic of choice is. Um, Stanford professor and psychologist, some of you have heard of him, he did something very famous called the Stanford Prison Study. You guys heard of that? That guy's still alive. He's like almost 90. His name is Philip Zimbardo, and he's done a, a ton of work on the escapist behaviors that mark our society. Get this. Think about the pressure we face to achieve in our culture. Think about this. This sense that most of us are raised with that somehow we have to like become a superhero. And Philip Zimbardo notes this, that by age 21, and this is, this is not his theory, this is based on research. By age 21, the average American male spends 10,000 hours playing video games. And he laments that we're losing an entire generation of men to what he calls the unholy trinity of porn, pot, and video games. Now, why are so many young men prone to this stuff? Because they can escape the pressure of the real world. A world where they are not a hero, a world where they are not special, where they are not the best, a world where they can never seem to achieve their potential, a world where they constantly feel like a failure. Why? Because you can be anything, you can do anything. Okay, but I'm not. Am I a failure? Oh shoot, I guess I'm a failure. This is the pressure of living in a yes culture. And we're doing this to our kids. And we're doing this to ourselves. When anyone can be great, then anyone that isn't is a failure. And, and, and like, just think about this. Are you as great as you feel like you should be? For many, the answer to that is not really. In our culture, we're so afraid of telling somebody that they're limited that it doesn't even occur to us that telling somebody, you can be and do anything, is also really dangerous. But this is our culture. This is living in a yes culture. So whether it's 
the schedule-aholic obsessed with achievement or the stereotype of like so-and-so living in mom's basement playing Fortnite till three in the morning, we live in a marginless society facing immense pressure. You can be anything you want and you need to be something great. Be impressive, be a hero, be the best in the world at something. And if not in, in real life, then do it in World of Warcraft, right? And so we live with no margin. And instead, with noise and overwork and pathological busyness and distraction, and as a result, burnout. And here's where hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil comes into play. Chronically exhausted, over-busy, over-scheduled, dis- digitally distracted people who are in a hurry all the time are not only vulnerable to burnout and far less happy, which is a big deal in and of itself, but they are severely diminished in their capacity to love. Again, I I say this not as a critic. I say this from experience. I say this as somebody for whom this has been, like, true far too often. And so, like, the big question is, what do we do about it? Like, is there a way forward? Is there a way out from underneath the crushing stress? Is there a way to find freedom and peace and rest? And here's what I'll tell you guys. For me, the answer is Jesus. It's just, it's Jesus. Now, if you're here or you're watching and you are not a follower of Jesus, I honestly, I don't know what to tell you. I I have found no solution of reprieve from this outside of Jesus. Um, Before coming to Jesus, and I I talked about this a few weeks ago, I struggled terribly with inadequacy. I was a pretty successful athlete, but I was always worried that one day I would fall short. And I I wanted to be great, but was so afraid of failure, of mediocrity, that it drove me to this like constant suicidal ideation. And one night to the act itself. And again, I won't go through all of that. I talked about that a while back. And the only thing that has really given me like consistent relief and peace and rest from all of that, which just floods, is Jesus. I have discovered a love and a vision for life in Jesus that changes everything. Not that I don't go back to my old ways of thinking. Okay, I do all the time. There's a famous proverb Okay, this is the middle school boy's famous favorite proverb, right? Like, as a dog returns to its vomit, right? So fools repeat their folly. And like, uh, as Jesus continues to work on me, I continue to go back to the gross stuff all the time. I, like, I have so far to go. But I've discovered this. The answer is Jesus. It's his love for me as I am. His dream for who I will one day become. His patience with me in the, in the in-between. And the reality that I don't have to be all things. I have legit limitations, and that is totally okay. In a world that says, you can be anything, you can do anything, what, what gets lost is the reality that limits are actually very real. And Jesus takes a very different perspective from that of our culture. So what I want us to do kind of as we walk through the the rest of this message is think about Jesus' perspective on all this for a minute. Like, what does it mean to be human? What does Jesus think it means to be human? 
Because our culture is shouting all kinds of things at us. But as apprentices of Jesus, what does Scripture say? What does Jesus say? And how does it differ from what our culture is shouting at us? And this is actually the primary focus of the origin story in Genesis. That story is is intended not so much to give us scientific data regarding the process of creation. It's far more about giving us a picture of what it means to be human. So let's give this some thought. Um, and just kind of walk through a couple of passages of very well-known scripture. Because this has a ton to say to us about our potential and about our limits. Okay, Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. Very famous. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I will give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay, let's jump to chapter 2, which is basically the same story from a little bit different angle. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man. Okay, in Hebrew the word is Adam, which is where we get the proper name Adam. But it wasn't a proper name, it just means human. The Lord, the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. In Hebrew, the word is nefesh, which just means soul. The human became a living soul, a soul. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, okay, and the word Eden means delight, and there he put the man he had formed. Okay, now on chapter 3. And this is where the woman comes into the story, and everything just gets better by order of magnitude. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and the story goes on. Notice that Adam and Eve, who in the literary style of the story are a stand-in for all of humanity. Adam is not a proper name in Hebrew. It's 
Adam just means human. And Eve is a word, is a Hebrew word meaning life. Okay, so human and life are a stand-in for all of us as a whole. And notice that they are both made in the image of God. And we, we like to talk about that. What we like to talk about a little bit less is that they were also made from the dust or the dirt. And this is not primarily like a scientific statement. This is not a geology textbook that you're reading. And if you read it that way, it gets pretty wonky pretty fast. This is an anthropological statement about who we are as humans, who we are created to be. And one way of reading this story is just this. This is what I want you to see. Human beings are infused by God with both potential and limitations. Okay, potential. We're, we're made in the image of God. We literally have the, divi- the, the divine fingerprints in our body. For as much as we talk about how, like, as much as talk as there is about how we're like the animals, and we are like the animals, but what secular culture misses is that we are just as much like God himself. We, we arrived with a dizzying amount of potential. And God's desire for us is for us to make something beautiful out of his creation and out of one another. To tap into God's image in us to do unimaginable good. We have tremendous potential. And it is very real. But also... We come with limitations. We're made from the dust. We get old. We get sick. We die. We are finite, not infinite. We're limited to a body and a time and a place in the creator, created order, a place that has been assigned to us by God himself. And as, and as a lot is said in our culture and within church culture about reaching our full potential, and I'm 100% for it, especially for those from an underprivileged background. It's one of the beauties of our cultures. We fight for everybody. Where did that idea even come from? Can I just say, like in the Roman culture, nobody was doing that, and then Jesus appeared on the scene, and lo and behold, the world kind of changed? Okay, so, so especially for those from an underprivileged background, the problem is, in the world today, almost nothing is said about like receiving our limitations. We talk about reaching our potential, but we don't also talk about receiving our limitations, and both are true. Guys, I hate to say it, but we all have limitations. Okay, here's just a few examples. Our body. I mean, we can only be in one place at a time. As much as I want to escape into the world of Star Wars and be Luke Skywalker, I can only be in one place at a time. Also, there are countless things that that go wrong with our bodies, and those things then limit how we function in the world. How about our mind? The reality is we can only know in part, as Paul once said. And the problem is we don't know what we don't know. And what we don't know often can and will hurt us. Not to mention our IQ, which is just not the same across the board. As much as we all want to believe it is, we're limited by some degree of IQ. Yes, like your mind is like a muscle and, and we can exercise it to its full potential. And, but I don't know about you, but for me, like no matter how much I read or study or how much school I go to or how many degrees I pursue, I will never have the intelligence of many of the people that I most look up to. I have limits. Another limit is our gifting. We're not all gifted in the same way or not to the same degree. 
And comparison to others just eats away our joy. Okay, how about this? Our personality and emotional capacity. We only have so much capacity. I married Jen, okay, not Trevor, but I married Jen. And if you don't know her, she has ridiculous capacity to get crap done. My capacity is significantly more limited. And in the early years of our marriage, I tried to keep up with her, and you guys, it nearly killed me. And I think she expected me to keep up with her, and she was irritated, and she nearly killed me. Um, but after years of, of doing some realistic assessment, she's realized I am much lower in capacity, and she allows me to have moments where I just don't keep up with her. Um, and I think both of us are experiencing more joy as a result of that. <laughs> like, she has way more capacity than I do. Lots of people do. Um, they can relate to more people without getting, like, relationally exhausted. They can carry more responsibility. They can handle more stress. They can handle more criticism. They can handle more work hours. And they can lead far more people than I ever could. And my lovely wife is among those people. And so thank God she gives me grace. How about this limitation? Our family of origin. None of us start with like a blank slate. Some of us start with a leg up, uh, and others of us kind of walk with a limp early on. And much of that has to do with our parents and who they were or who they were not. Our, our family of origin puts limitations on us right out of the gate. How about our socioeconomic origin? I mean, there's so much anger these days over the concept of privilege, right? And the reality that we don't all start from the same place. And of course, we want to mitigate against that as much as possible. We want to give as many people as possible as much opportunity as we can. We want to advocate for equality and for opportunity. But let's just be honest. We are not all starting from the same place. How about our season of life? Right? Like, like going to college or raising a young child or caring for aging parents. In certain seasons, we have very little extra time to give away. Many have noted that when we're young, we're money poor, but we have time, especially if we're single. But as we age and then pick the constraints that come to define our life, it flips, and many of us now have money, but we're time poor. And they say that, and this is interesting, they say that for every, like, really close relationship, you cut your margin or free time in half. So get married, and you will have half the free time you had when you were single. If you're single, you have that to look forward to. If you have one baby, it will go down to 25%. Now, I have three kids, so in theory... I'm operating at about 8.3% of what I had when I was single, <laughs> right? And in light of that, I was thinking, like, you know what? I probably should have just renamed, yeah, I should have just named my kids, like, limitation number one, limitation number two, <laughs> limitation number three. <laughs> Did you just poke your kid, Eugene? <laughs> uh, that's the Russian way, though. Like, uh, <laughs> land of opportunity, we can do anything. Come on, let's be real. Uh, 
here's what I'll say. My, my kids, you guys know me. You know my kids are the joy of my life. But this season that, that lasts, actually turns out it lasts for decades, is a limitation. Uh, last one. God's call on our life. I, I hesitate to say this, but there are limits to God's call on each of us. And actually, I don't hesitate. There's beauty in that. There are limits to what God is calling you to do. There's this sphere in the language of Corinthians that God has assigned to each of us. And yours is different than mine. And mine is different than yours. And here's what's freeing to me. I don't have to live your life. I don't have to take on the assignment that God has given to each of you. My job is to, within all of my limitations that are very real, embrace what God has for me. But I can relate to that. There's a very famous scene at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus reaffirms Peter's calling, right, after Peter has denied him and Jesus has been crucified and is now resurrected and he's with the disciples. And he reaffirms Peter's calling by asking him three times, Peter, do you love me? After Peter had denied Jesus three times, Jesus invites Peter to affirm his love three times. And Peter replies three times, yes, I do. And then Jesus says, yeah, you do. I know you do. And you will live it. And Jesus goes on to spell out for Peter what will happen. And I think it's beautiful because here's what he says. He says, very truly, I tell you, when you were younger or dressed yourself and went where you wanted, uh, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, Follow me. Now, Peter would proclaim Jesus all the way to his own crucifixion. He would lay down his life for Jesus as he had seen Jesus do for him. And Jesus knew, and Jesus was telling him that he was proud of him ahead of time. So you guys, you think about, like, what an incredible moment can you imagine that moment? And then Peter, in Peter fashion, wrecks it. <laughs> and he does something that we all do. And this is the part of this that I can relate to. It says, okay, then, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. Okay, that's John who wrote the Gospel of John. He always writes himself into the story as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Awesome. <laughs> Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Wait a minute, I'm going to get crucified? Like, what about him? Peter compares himself to someone else. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And Peter would. And he would learn to embrace God's calling on his life. And he would stop trying to outdo all the other disciples. He would serve. He would love. He would celebrate others. He would work hard, but not obsessively and not without rest and not without peace. He would learn to slow down and to just commune with God. 
You guys, I, I don't know any other way off of this obsessive hurry sickness treadmill. The only way that I know is to let Jesus determine what constitutes success. Because the world and this culture that we live in are relentless. I can't measure up. Yeah, I can't even measure up to the vision of greatness in my own head. But Jesus is calling me to something that will not drive me to burnout. It factors in all the limitations that he knows I have. And it factors in rest and abiding deeply with him and in him. And you guys, when I, when I find a way to actually begin to live from that place, there is peace. And there's rest. And I am set free for moments at a time to actually look around and love people. And so what I want to do is I just want to close by inviting you to, to bow your heads and close your eyes. Just bow your heads and close your eyes. And, and I just, I just want to recognize some of you are so tired. And those of you that are going to lead music, you can make your way up. Some of you are so tired. And you are so in need of Jesus. And so let me just read his words over you. Okay, this is... This is Matthew chapter 11. And these are the words of Jesus that are paraphrased from the message translation. And I just want to invite you to, to not only hear these, but to like receive them. Jesus resumed talking to the people, but now tenderly. The Father has given me all these things to do and say. This is a unique father-son operation coming out of father-son intimacies and knowledge. No one knows the son the way the father does, nor the father the way the son does. But I'm not keeping it to myself. I'm ready to go over it line by line with anyone willing to listen. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.